Uh, well, good morning. If you don't know me, Christian, um, it, it is a pleasure for uh, Sue and I to leave this tribe for visiting again. We just welcome you. And uh, man, Joseph, amazing. It's so surreal to see you back here. And of course, it was an honor to be part of Friday's ceremony. Uh, we are in a, a series on culture. And uh, it's been a, a bit overwhelming, to be honest with you, because it is, it's kind of opening up both inside of me and what I think the potential of our body is to explore the realms of how God wants us to be a people in culture that are countercultural. And therefore, everything that you can possibly study, put yourself towards, learn from the Father that has anything to do with being a people in a world that's in conflict and tension has something to do with culture. So it's, in some ways it's tricky to hone in on what exactly is God's heart for us now, culturally. And in the midst of this, I was chatting with some folks last week, and it starts bringing up questions that we have not yet specifically addressed as a body. Um, I think I have a list, I don't know what slide it is, a couple slides in, uh, of just types of things that I, I have on my heart for us to delve into at some point this year. There we go, it's kind of small. But some of the controversial conversations we have, we may have with Jesus this year, such as Jesus in the, the gay community, sexual formation, um, specifically, what do we do with, with uh, the transgender community? What do we do with privilege, politics, violence, real compassion in a controversial way? Women, men, leadership. These are real questions. And, and we have access like never before to information, insight, input from leaders from all different streams. And what's interesting is, it, regardless of where you have gleaned something, have, have, have anyone in the room not read or heard or watched something on any of those topics? Whether that's on social media, YouTube, the news, whatever. We all have, every single one of us. But it's, it's significant for us as a community to tap into God's heart for what is our posture, what is our voice, and what, what does what we are being anchored on in His Word, but in His Word in this moment of history, what is that supposed to look like? So I want to say we are going to get into those. Those of you that are starting to, to, to sense some perspiration under your armpits about what the heck is this man going to get into this morning, I'm not going to take head on any of these today, but we are going to tackle some of these this year. Um, but what I believe that we're doing now, some of you more excited than others, amen? What I believe we're going to do this uh, today is, is get into more of the foundation of our mindsets and our awareness of the lenses of how culture is forming us. Isn't that fair enough? Okay, and, and because we make a space for, for testimony and for um, dreams and for processing with the Holy Spirit. I have less time than I planned, which is fine. So I'm just going to move and just release on me the power of the Spirit to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we already read the word, and by we, I mean Jordan, which was fantastic. Thank you, Jordan. We're going to get into Genesis 11 briefly, just briefly today, um, as it relates to the, the Tower of Babel. But first, I, I want to, again, kind of remind us of the foundation of... Uh, of what we've been talking about. Um, so, systems. <clears throat> a few weeks back, towards the end of the year, 
I talked about how we have several systems that are at bay. <laughs> and we have, in the midst of, we have kids. We also have kids everywhere, everywhere. So if you haven't noticed that, they're, they're just everywhere. So just, it's the, it's the background sound. I've learned to love it. And I've learned to focus. See, I never know whether to give any attention or no attention to it. So I just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> but ultimately, we live in a, a system instead of just a place, a direction, a journey. We have this concept in society where life is a journey. And when we, when we talk about life being a journey, we kind of talk about this underlying concept that we feel like there's a destination that we get to. And we know we never get there, but we still put it on a pendulum where life is just this journey that has these points and we're going kind of this way, like an arrow. But life is much more of a system and it's interconnected. And that system has, has a system in your home, in your family, in Los Angeles, in the United States. And when you're not aware of that system, your awareness uh, diminishes your ability towards your belief system and your, your lenses of how that belief system is tainted and how that lives out in your life and so forth. Um, but we ultimately understand that we have a need for God. Um, and when I was worshiping with all of you in community, we were on, we were on the, uh, I guess it was the last song we ended up singing. We, as we were singing, there's no greater call. I lay it, I lay it all down. I'm thankful for worshiping the praise into what songs might align with the message because we, we didn't talk this week about that. But we, and that's a common song. I've cried at many a conference on, on laying it all down. And, and as we worship, I can, I can feel in the atmosphere this sense that every single one of you have this desire to lay it all down. It's like it's not something in the Christian life that we resist, we actually move towards laying it down. It may be difficult, but we're not resisting the declaration, I lay it all down, Jesus. Every one of you in here that calls yourself a follower of Jesus, it started with that act of laying it down. And when we decree it as a community, we are reminding ourselves of where we are versus where he is, and it's a selfless declaration. And when, when we get into society, what we start to realize is that we have an individualistic society. Some might say we're in an age of individualism. And when we live in the midst of that, there are subversive mindsets that get in and taint that lens for us to really understand the fullness of what we're saying. Because we say, I lay it all down. But I'd like to propose to all of us that what we mean is, I lay it all down as much as is appropriate in this culture and context. I lay it all down as, as much as anyone else would that's realistic and in society today would be expected of me and you, I hope, Lord. We have, we have these kind of caveats. We have, a, we have these things where I don't even think we're even aware of it. We're not, I don't think we're worshiping. I know I'm not worshiping going, I lay it all down, but honestly, my, my heart cries, I lay it all down and I'm serious. And I sense that for all of us, but I think we are ignorant of what we aren't willing to lie down. And when we discover those areas, that we still need to lie down. Could those be those areas that you're praying for breakthrough in and you're asking him to bring breakthrough and he is saying, yes, would you lay it all down? And you're like, yes, I just sang that, dang it. <laughs> he might adjust our lenses. Amen. Okay. So, 
That was free. That was just came during worship. So what, what, what I want us to do is I want us to see our need for God in light of our cultural system. And so we talked about these three needs, these three human needs. We have a need for meaning, community, and freedom. Meaning, community, and freedom. And the problem is, is we live in a wonderful free society, thanks to Yosef and many other Marines and servicemen and women, among other things. But we're not just talking about our safety and our military. We're talking about the, the levels of choice that we have of where we go to school, where we live, how many different kinds of catch-up are in the aisle, and blah, blah, blah. I talked about that. The, the reality is we have an overwhelming cavern of freedom. So in order for our, our tank of meaning and community to be filled, we have to limit our tank of freedom. We have to choose a narrow path, limit our options, and hone in and focus on something worth laying your life down for. That's the Christian life. And, and that's, that's the posture that we need to take to the table. There's always a system that is trying to form us, whether in intentionally or unintentionally. Our invitation to all of us is one, to enter into this culture as a community, the culture of the kingdom. And in that, we become a community like heaven on earth. We ask the questions, what are we becoming? We're becoming like Jesus, we get all that, but what does that look like? It's a, it's a forming process, but we want all of us to do it in a community because that's the only way Jesus actually invites us in. But we have to individually take our part in that. And two, our invitation is also a vision for presence, formation, and renewal. An invitation to come into the presence of God. That's a continual invite. You're all invited today and every day. To intimately connect with Him. And then there's an invitation of formation. To be beautifully formed by Him. And then thirdly, an invitation of the mission of renewal, which is to joyfully join in with Him. And this will require several things. It will require dependence on Him, intimacy with Him, and communion around Him. I will repeat, it will require dependence on Him, intimacy with Him, and communion around Him. And so, as we, as we lay it all down, what are those areas that, that need to be analyzed? Renewal, revival, awakening, don't we all love these terms in our little whatever stream this is? Right? Uh, what's the difference? What's the difference between awakening, like revival, renewal, or any of these other terms? Um, I'd like to, to propose a real simple one. Awakening is what people said in like Jonathan Edwards' day. Revival is, is what started to be you know, said Wesley's and Whitfield's, and we still talk about revival now more than ever. Um, a guy named Mark Sayers, who I'm, I'm loving, I'll probably quote 20 times today, he, he talks about, well, a lot of people use the word renewal. He says he uses the term renewal because it essentially means this. Renewal is revival gone viral. And so I think we have a, we have a, a lens of revival where we think it's we pray like the Moravians 24-7 for... And, and, self-sacrifice, all these things, and then all of a sudden, like, the floodgates will come in, and, and then our church will be filled, and we won't do anything but sit here and pray, ever. And there's a part of that where I think some of the church needs to just stop, stop striving, and sit here and pray. But then there's this whole life of the kingdom. And when you, when you take apart renewal, 
God's heart for renewal isn't just the revival of people coming in to an encounter and expression of worship in filling our churches. It might include that. And it may, be, it may be an overflow of those who pray. In fact, I have never seen something called a revival that wasn't first prepared through people's laid down lives of prayer. But renewal, if you start to look biblically at how to define what that looks like, it's, it's the transformation of society to reflect heavenly attributes. And you and I are invited into a way of life where as a community we start to demonstrate what that looks like. But what can get confusing is everyday life. And what the, the story that you're in and that I'm in biblically started with that gets to this specific reality is Babel. And Genesis 11 talks about this concept of Babel. And ultimately, I'm not going to go into it because of time too much. But ultimately, what is the lesson that the Tower of Babel teaches us? All these people deciding they're gonna build a tower up to God, and they ultimately are scattered in languages galore. Anything we do apart from God's will, will fail. That's the lesson. And there's, there's, a, there's kind of this competition going back and forth between this concept of self-sufficiency and selfless blessing. Ultimately, the Tower of Babel story is, is yearning for us to ask the question of what God is like. And what is God like? He's the type of God that wants us not to build towers unto ourselves in our self-sufficiency. He's a God that desires to release us with his power and authority in the earth to be a blessing to all nations. So the curse of being scattered isn't as much as you screwed up, now you're screwed, and now you have to go everywhere with your languages. It's forcing them to scatter instead of staying where they're at. When you stay where you're at, you cannot fulfill the commission to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth with heaven on earth. You cannot take the original commission of Eden in one place because the commission from Eden and the great commission and every commission that's from God towards humanity is to go and to be fruitful, to multiply, and to take that culture, his, and to bring it here. And so, what Babel taught us, I, I love Stanley Hauermoss. Anyone have read this guy? Good, one of you. Yes, I see that, beautiful two of you. Well, it's, it's because he's a super nerd that's from Duke, the worst university on earth. <laughs> Never mind. And he, he talks about how there's two competing stories, Babel versus Pentecost. I wanna read a couple quotes from him. The Babel story is the story, the story of a disintegrated world divided by race, language, and agenda. It was constituted by conflict and war, selfish gain through power and coercion at the expense of others. Second, then, we're supposed to understand Babel versus a New Testament story. And what is that imaging story in the New Testament with Babel? Pentecost. And at Pentecost, it's God's answer to the problem of Babel and his great act of new creation. And renewal. At Pentecost, God created a new language, but it was a language that is more than words. It is instead a community whose memory of its Savior creates the miracle of being a people whose very differences contribute to their unity. Let me repeat that. Their differences contribute to their unity. That's only possible at Pentecost. We call this new creation church. 
We really do have an alternative Babel, we meaning the church, to fear of one another, and finally, then war. We have this alternative of fear and war. And even more happily, it means that insofar as we are the church, we do not just have an alternative, we are the alternative. Say, we are the alternative. We do not have a story to tell, but in the telling, we are the story being told. Mm. Doesn't that just give you all the right feels? And, and ultimately, he, he, he says this, people are hungry for the life of Pentecost, characterized by harmonious fellowship with others of like mind and spirit, sharing grace and love, forgiving as we are forgiven, finding rest from the ruthless dog-eat-dog world of Babel. The temptations then are twofold. To resist forsaking the spirit and relying on one's own human willpower and isolating oneself from others and individualizing the social, ethical task. I'm going to summarize that for you. The temptations are this. One, relying on yourself instead of the presence. And two, isolation under this system of individualism. You can't do it alone. I can't do it alone. And we're not supposed to. Amen. Let's go home. Okay. I'm going to try to then tie that in to this problem of today. We have a problem today with two then competing models of revival. There's this kind of Christian revival, and then there's this kind of secular revival. Christian revivalism kind of took off, and I, I, would, I would even call this like when we talk about we need to get back to the scripture and like it was in the early church where they had everything in common and it was just amazing. That's All of us have lived in a context where we go back to those scriptures, which is great, and we talk about revival as a Christian, right? Okay. Here's the thing. We're in the midst of a kind of secular revival. Secularism, individualism, and the climate of the culture we live in is in the midst of a revival right now. And, and that revival is, is all about going back to the concept that was actually released in ancient Greece and Rome. It was all about pleasure. And that there might be a God, but... Uh, probably not or whatever, let's just seek pleasure and we develop a philosophy around that. We're now converging these two realities in our climate today. And the average street man or woman's view, their average belief is that the world will get ultimately better, I'm talking about kind of the non-Christian secularists, that the world will get better when we get rid of belief. It's why we have pundits on the news that are talking about, they, they constantly target um, people of faith because they can just rationally see how faith causes conflict. And they often have really good points. And I often think that they're more intelligent than the people that they bring on their show defending my faith, sadly. But the, the reality is, is that their, their goal isn't really to be mean. It's that they see a belief system that kind of works. And these, these religious beliefs are, are not helpful. So if we can get rid of that, we can all just get on the thing that we're all seeking anyway, which is, which is happiness and be true to yourself and pleasure and all these things. But we've redefined happiness and pleasure. That's kind of the problem. I'll get to that in a second. But the so what is essentially this. Even Christians, that's you and me, we've been formed by some of these things. Some of them are very obvious and some of them are much more subtle. 
We've been formed by these things, and, and we've been influenced by them, and we, we've been influenced by this street-level secularism on probably more ways than you and I could ever freakishly know, hope, or imagine. But here is the really good news. We're at a time in history where the culture is failing. This system, this secularization, this secular revival is failing. I feel like we have really good news from the church as tense as things are politically and everything else. Because what it is doing is it's drawing up, if you will listen and see and watch, that this secular revival is failing and we have an opening, we have a moment where, where the world, they're not saying, show me Jesus. They're saying, the system sucks. If you talk about the system, it doesn't matter if it's Christian, Jew, Muslim, atheist, liberal, conservative, the system sucks. Everybody believes the system is out against us all, and no one trusts the system. What we don't realize is that we can't help but be in the system, and that the first step is to be aware of what the system actually is. And I think that's our, that's our posture. And one of the things we need to understand in the failure is, you know, secularism is ultimately the absence of God's presence. It could be defined as progress without presence, to quote Sayers again. To live as if there's no God. It feels like the tide of faith has gone out, but it always comes back. We were just at the beach in San Diego yesterday. And we had like five minutes. We were supposed to just say hi to some friends and then be on our way. And then you go out to one of those, you know, typical little family parks with the native basketball hoop and the, you know, super high-tech padded turf that like falls so gracefully for a toddler and they just bounce right off joy and happiness. And, and then, of course, we're in San Diego, like I said, godforsaken place with nothing but beaches and beauty and perfect weather. You just look to the left and there's surfers and beautiful surfers and beach with children playing and my, we weren't supposed to go to the beach, but my kids couldn't help it. They saw the beach, they kind of asked, and then they just ran to the beach. We didn't have really, we kind of had changes of clothes, but we weren't planning to change those clothes. We had a baby shower to get to, which we're glad we made, it was beautiful. But, um, my wife and her wonderful friend Courtney were just meant to go for a walk. And they couldn't go for a walk because as soon as you got down to the beach, you start walking on one of those gosh darn gorgeous, obnoxious cliffs of San Diego. And you can't because the tide is too high at that moment. And we didn't have any more time to wait for the tide to go back. So you all know the picture. We've all been to the beach. The tide comes in. The tide goes out. Is anyone worried about the tide like staying up and not going back out? No. We know the tide will go back out. But we're in a moment right now where the tide has done something in the world of Christendom. And everyone's freaking out. Like, will the, will the tide come back? Everyone's leaving the church. We've been seeing tides come for 500, 1,000, 2,000 years. And it's only a matter of time before renewal hits when a people will take hold of what's happening in society and the tide will come back. Ultimately, the ultimate tide is coming. 
But the reality is, is that instead of going like, oh, this tide is so bad, and it's just going to go like, oh, all of a sudden we're going to be in the middle of the Atlantic, and it's whatever. I don't, I, I, that's as far as the analogy went. We're now stretching. But, but the, the, the point is this. The tide is coming. Are we going to be part of that tide? Or is it going to go to the next generation? Ultimately, there is a moment right now for us to take hold and to look out at our opportunity and to be a people that are not just being tossed by the waves, but we're ready to ride the tide back in. So we have a false post-Christian secular revival. I'm sorry for the big word, but I like it. Post-Christian, false Christian secular revival. And then we have a Christian revival that's been kind of secularized, and it's like an attempt at revival. And so these things are at like odds with each other. They're trying, it's trying to redefine the story. So I want to briefly go through like what does this look like? What does this look like of how the world that kind of has a Christian story that we've given them, but how has it been kind of tainted? And I think all of us are tainted by these things. I want to briefly go through them and then we'll end on a high note. The story that we all know, creation. What does that look like in secular society? Because here's the thing. We all, and I mean that by all people created in God's image, which is everyone. We were wired for the story of God to be lived out. And it is being lived out. We're pulled and designed to live this story out. So the creation narrative, the creation story, it has been redefined as secular society as being what? The inner self. It's the idea of Eden where we were fallen with no shame in God's presence and the secular version has come and said that we have this inner self that was pure before being spoiled by what? Our environments and our family of origin. Which has some truth. So the inner self thing is what society is looking at. And then what happens? Your, your, your co-worker is like, oh, it's been a rough year. I just need to kind of like go back into nature, go camping for a while and like reconnect with my inner self. Right? What is that story? That's revisiting the foundations of the created order and who they are. You should take note of that, not argue with that, but don't be blind to what it is. Here's the thing. We're wired that way too. And the culture is like, sometimes we're like, I need to just go, like, go connect with God in nature. And what we really do is we just go out in nature, and I don't know if we really connect with God, or it's just better than being in the hustle and bustle. But how is it different than everybody else at work that does the same thing? We're subversively kind of entering into their story instead of leading with ours. So that's creation and the inner self. Then the fall, what does that happen to be in society? Well, that's, they, they tell the story of inner self and then trauma. Trauma. Trauma being the secular version of when something happened to me, maybe in childhood or a divorce or something else. And then you have these, these, these kind of things where we, we have these binding commitments that, that stop our happiness. And, and, and then we, we're, we're kind of locked in the pursuit of happiness. And then we have this continual adult adolescence, people into their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever. And the message is this, any form of commitment, responsibility, restrictions, and certainly any sense of authority is seen as an obstruction to my inner self, my inner child, my true self, and I've got these traumas that I've got to take care of and focus on. And so the fall, this trauma, starts to be put into a model where we ultimately redefine sin. And how is sin redefined? Is anyone tracking with me? Okay. 
Creation, fall, sin. Inner self, trauma. Sin is what? The secular model, the secular story is that sin is essentially unhappiness. What makes you feel bad about yourself? Or even just anything difficult is looked at as sin. Someone got it. The secular version of sin then becomes low self-esteem and unhappiness. Here's the thing. Happiness is a good thing. The joy of the Lord. The joy set before the cross. There is a biblical concept to desire joy. And in fact, the church has wrestled with that for a while. And I think most of us in the room have settled on the fact that like, joy is fantastic. Jesus paid for it. There's a realm of, of stuff better than even happiness or pleasure or whatever, and it's called the joy of Jesus. Let's enter into the joy of my master. Yes, that's true. But we've been muddled in a secular culture that has redefined unhappiness, and sin becomes anything that makes you unhappy, which you've redefined as pleasure. This goes back to the ancient Greeks and Romans. When you take God out of the picture, what else do you have to live for is let's pursue this concept of pleasurable peace and tranquility and goodness. And we've redefined it and then redefined happiness. So pleasure and happiness were never meant to be the same thing. In fact, um, there's, a, there's a book called Hacking of the American Mind. And the whole book was, was about, we've confused happiness with pleasure. I'm continuing to steal Mark Sayers here, if anyone is going to quote and write this down, that's not my quote. Happiness is about serotonin. So your, com your contentment inside, if you're getting into the brain, is, is much more about, uh, it's two different things. Happiness and pleasure are two different kind of dynamics going on in your brain. Serotonin and endorphins. I won't get into that mostly because I don't know how to explain it. But the reality is, is that they are scientifically two different things. Pleasure and happiness are not the same. Say it. Pleasure and happiness are not the same. Thank you. So, then what do we do? Well, we live in this capitalist society where everything churns around taking advantage of the idea of discontent. So, when everyone is discontent with what they have, and we put pleasure pockets in front of them to pursue, to work towards, or whatever, that churns many things, and it builds up society, it builds up the economy, it builds up a temporary self-esteem and everything else, and it operates under this guise of happiness. We know this, we've all listened to the TED Talks about how happiness really works, the science is starting to show this, and what I want us to start to do is say, that's right, science is continually reminding us of what God is like and how it created us. And so, Jesus, where are you in your word leading us to say amen with Ted or whoever else is talking? Because here's the, here's the thing. Consumerism is invested in perpetuating the model of discontent. We are perpetually then in need of pleasure that's been defined as happiness and even just stuff I don't want to do, like a tough conversation, is seen as sin that I shouldn't, it's bad. A tough conversation is bad. Doing hard things is bad because it affects my pleasure and my happiness. <sighs> so let's just expose that lie. And maybe we'll go into a more bigger talk on that at some other time. But to go down the line, because we're out of time, is finally salvation. What is salvation in the secular model? Salvation then becomes rediscovering that inner self or your centeredness. 
Now, here is the beautiful thing when you have whoever, family or friends or whatever, that talk about that, to rediscover this, go get centered, intercept. More people in LA talk about being centered than anywhere I've been in my entire life. What they are begging you to demonstrate with your life, probably not initially with your words, because they will not listen, is salvation. They are decreeing their heart's cry for salvation. So I'm going on a trip or I'm taking a class to get centered, to discover who I really am. And then our, our Christian model is ultimately coming up against that, saying, well, we're all about laying down our life, dying to self, living a holy life, etc., etc., etc. That's what discovering who you are is. And we get that, right? Kind of. We're pursuing holiness. The beauty of holiness is one of our values. We're pursuing holiness. But you know that everyone is pursuing some version of holiness. That's what pursuing the centered life is. It's their pursuit of holiness. So the Christian holiness, we might say, we're fleeing from this concept, this taintedness of sin that keeps us from the fullness and wholeness of who we are as sons and daughters of a king. That's Christian holiness, fleeing from sin. Secular holiness is fleeing from its version of sin. So if sin then becomes, again quoting Sayers, externally given identity or these commit, binding commitments or doing anything difficult, if that's what sin is, if sin is just doing anything difficult, holiness to them becomes fleeing from restrictions, commitments, and anything difficult. So why, why should we judge them in one sense? They're pursuing holiness. They're fleeing difficulty is how the entire secular culture has defined pursuing salvation, wholeness, and holiness. And what of that has creeped into our own lives? The, the new creation, the heaven on earth reality, redemption, that is the final culmination of the story. And what have they defined that as? ultimate achievement. The achievement culture that we live in, where we're, we're hitting metrics or whatever else it is, or, or we can change our outer self to meet some kind of attractive level that makes us feel like our expression of our inner self is coming alive. And ultimately, you, you get to heaven by, by merging this distortion of pleasure and happiness, feeling, feeling good about yourself and feeling pleasure in the moment. And why the system is failing is because they may even limit their tank of freedom to pursue meaning and community, but they're filling those tanks of meaning and community with a failing input. They are inputting lifeless, lifeless, useless, cultural junk. And we are too. So what are we putting in? And that's where the narrow path comes in. And how many of you have been obnoxiously offended at somebody trying to yell with a black sign with white letters that everyone's going to hell as they walk in wherever and that they need to get back on the straight and narrow? That message, that picture has been utterly destroyed by people that are completely ignorant of the context and the opportunity of the moment. That narrow path 
is meant to be this place of a very specific path you follow to get to life. When Jesus talks about the narrow path, he is not emphasizing that only a handful of people go and everyone else burns in hell. Also, heaven is legitimately real, and so is hell. But the story we've told of both has been highly unhelpful, and in many cases, not even accurate. And therefore, when we tell the story of the narrow path to ourselves first, it's not about, thank God I'm on it. You know what happens to church when we all just worship and thank God that we're on it? Scott, Scott's dream. And we get into this mode where we're just thanking God that at least we're in. And what the message Jesus is giving is that I've given you a way of life that's focused. Keep your eyes on me. Abide in the vine. It's the way of life. And then I have really good news for everyone else. Let me show you the way. Yes, it's narrow. It is wonderful. So our emphasis doesn't become on damning people, but instead on all your ways of pursuing life that don't work. Oh, so you're going camping. Great. How's that working for you? How's that cycle going? And legitimately mean it. How's, how's that marriage going that you tell me about that's miserable? How's it going? I'm, by the way, I'm talking to your coworker, not you. That's a little, my tone, I feel like, if someone's not understanding me right now, I'm not talking to you guys. What I'm talking to you guys is, welcome. Welcome to this place where we pursue utter purity, holiness, and life that is unimaginably beautiful, unimaginably worth every sacrificial act of selflessness that we put towards it. And what we get in return continues to blow our minds and we testify of that continually. We lift each other up. We remind each other of who we are. We don't worry about falling down we, because we're here together. We've done it before and we are not isolating ourselves with that temptation. And we're ultimately in the act of dying to self. We're not doing it through religion. We're doing it with eyes of love, with tears of thanks, with gratefulness, connection, intimacy, and presence. So, let's wrap this up and let's have the worship team start coming up. Here's what I want us to do. We have an opportunity in this moment to change our inputs and to ultimately start inputting our life with presence. So if we're going to have application points, number one would be change your inputs towards presence. <coughs> Secondly, die to self, whatever that looks like. Limiting your focus and your freedoms. This is the reality of what dying to self is. It's relying on yourself instead of presence is the lie that we believe. And, and finally, resisting isolation. Isolation under a system of individualism will never work. And ultimately, when you do it alone, 
you have missed the entire gospel. Jesus did everything around a table with other people. Every message, every lesson, every person that was far from him typically was at a table with him when he gave them their invitation. Before his death, a table. With the worst sinners, a table. The prodigal son gets brought back from a father around a table and a feast. So we're invited to a feastly party with others who understand operate and live in this life-giving reality. But what does that look like? It looks like a narrow path that's all about your focus. And I'd love you to stand, and if you wanna close your eyes, put your hands out in front of you or on your heart, or wherever you feel like you need to position yourself to just pray, I wanna pray over us. Father, will you focus us afresh with this image of this narrow path, what it really is. I want us to focus our diet, focus our time, and to focus our relationships. Our diet meaning, what are we putting in? Putting in with media, with our phones, with our computers, with our reading, with our food, with our bodies, our thoughts, and our minds. Focus your diet. And secondly, focus your time. What needs to be laid at the foot of the cross with your time? Some of it's going to hurt really, really bad initially. Because you're going to have to let it go. He's going to put something back in your lap that you, you might not be willing currently to say yes to. I need you to let go of this thing that's taking up your time so that you can come into my presence for an unreasonable amount of time without an agenda. Many of us need to give our agendas to him. This culture of achievement is choking it out of us. And finally, focus your relationships. We have more options for relationships, both Christian and otherwise, in this city than I could ever have thought possible. And when you say yes to this community, you're not just saying no to everybody else, but there is an essence where I, I do not want to say what exactly it looks like, but I know there's some of us in the room that are hesitating to go all in to this community because they've been burned, hurt, and they're just not sure. And that might be fair enough. But for those who are willing to go all in, let's establish a place where those who have been burned and aren't safe and aren't sure are drawn in, invited in, loved in, pursued in, and where we've committed. Are your commitments in order? Are they fragmented? Who are you aligned to? Who are the people that speak into your life? diet, your time, your relationships. Jesus, we give you those focuses and we invite you to narrow our focus.
We love you. Bless you in Jesus' name. I'm going to invite this worship team to lead us now.